This is Mindframe, a podcast of mind-bending science fiction. I'm your host and the author of Mindframe, David Moten, and with me as always is my producer extraordinaire, Brent Van Tassel. We are a Podbelly original, and if you're interested in finding some great content about podcasts or finding some really cool podcasts to listen to, you should bounce over to podbelly.com. You can find us there as well as a lot of other shows in the directory that should be able to entertain you and keep your, uh, your feed full of great podcasts. So go to the website, check out some shows, and you will not be disappointed. As always, we want to thank our patrons. Um, you really make a difference. You keep me motivated to keep writing. You keep us motivated to keep uh, engaging in social media. And if you go to patreon.com slash mindframepodcast for just a dollar a month, you can get all of our sit down episodes where myself and Zach and Brent sit around. We have a lot of laughs. We talk sci-fi. We talk writing. We talk about the events in the individual chapters. It's like a whole secondary podcast behind this podcast, and it's definitely worth it. So go to patreon.com backslash mindframe podcast, and you'll be able to find us there. So on this interlude, we go back to the main interlude story and where we left off, we had seen Josephine Wu become fully realized and activated with her Psyamp. She was able to walk on water, bend physics, do things that no one else is able to do. And just as she was starting to realize her power, we saw Sheriff Hiltberhan run in, zap her, and knock her unconscious. This is the continuation of that story, but we take off from a similar moment um, with the perspective of Sheriff Hiltberhan, sort of, because this is mind frame. Interlude. Hilt Berhan, 2142. The samurai sat in meditation, legs folded into each other, back straight. He breathed and tried to take inventory of where he was, what he was up against, and what talismans may help him achieve victory. The only way to win this fight was by summoning an elemental calm running through his veins. Every bodily chemical had to be focused, used with intention. The samurai felt a bit queasy, and he knew that it was his key interacting with his stomach. That was a good thing. He had been chasing the ronin for far too long. Across all of Japan, he sought his prey. This ronin, this masterless cur who threatened the security of the very empire with his deviant ways, magical powers, and the demons at his command. The samurai would have leapt from earth and followed the scourge to the heavens, from the sun to the stars, if that was where the path took him. The samurai had already won a victory this day. After sailing through dark seas, his ship, the Kurohoseki, had docked in the port outside of the Ronin's town. He sailed to a harbor at night, and the quick, stealthy ship went unnoticed by the dock's denizens. The samurai made his way through secret tunnels known only to the original architect who dreamed up the place's plans and the emperor himself. He crept into the castle, and inside its stone buttresses, he found the sanctuary. The sanctuary sat in the very center of the Ronin's keep. It was once the most beautiful garden in all the lands. It was famous in painting and poem for the pink glow of peach blossoms, the flitting streams, the large dazzling koi fish, and the bonsai sculpted to patient perfection. But under the Ronin's malignant hand, it had become a place of twisted puzzles and chthonic fogs. The main tree was now a bare thing, 
branches like the hand of a dying man convulsing in his final desperate shudder of life. The bonsai were brambles leering over the paths with their sharpened thorns. And the koi streams were a swollen green or a sickly gurgle of water that belched fogs and mists. The smell of rotting and bloated fish bellies hung low. Truth was somewhere in this horrific garden, but the samurai would have to battle to find it. Already he had encountered the sorceress. That was his first victory. She had flitted through the twisted garden, and it opened at her touch. The brambles recoiled and gave her smooth passage, and the ginkgo tree's bark peeled itself and fell into her small cast-iron teapot. She had walked across one of the mold-covered streams as if the water was a cold stone. Candles were lit through the garden, the one beacon of light and hope, and as she passed them, she'd slice them in two with her witch's talons. And these were just tricks she employed while making tea. But the samurai had his own tricks. He wore the gown of the spider's kiss. He had taken it from a criminal bent on undoing the empire. It made him silent, let him walk on walls, shed evil magics like water on a waxed cloth, and even summoned extra arms to aid him in battle. With it, he had silently followed the dark priestess into her chambers. As she stoked her stove to make the tea, he debated between his blade or the knotted stick of storms. The knotted stick of storms was given to him by a fellow samurai with the promise it could stop a sorceress from casting her black magic. And this is what he had used. From it, he had summoned a mighty bolt of lightning that felled the sorceress, but she was resilient. On the ground, she had begun to mutter the words of a dark incantation, summoning hate in her eyes. He struck her again, and she was felled. Not dead, but no longer a threat. He tied her in adamantine manacles and a gag blessed by a priest, leaving her rooms as silently as he entered them. For now, his hunt was with the ronin. Back in the twisted gardens, the fog had grown more dense. He heard the snorts and huffs, the inhuman and labored breath of one of the ronin's two demons. He also heard the footfall of the ronin as he retreated deeper into the sanctuary. The ronin laughed, baiting the samurai to hot-hearted action. And that was when he sat to meditate. He was hoping for just a moment of clarity. He knew the fogs in this space were a sorcery. He knew his mind was being affected by the demons. They could help the ronin master the white chamber of the framed mine and bleed its cursed contents out into the real world. In his meditation, he found the sound of water dripping onto stone near him. It was a steady drip, the rhythm of a calm human heart. He followed it and breathed. His spine was straight and his lungs took in deep gulps of humid, fetid air. Worry about the demons fell silent in his soul. He breathed more deeply, sucking in through his nose and raising his abdomen as it filled, exhaling with his mouth in a deep growl of spent oxygen, again and again until his body, mind, and soul were unified. And just then, for a moment, the spell was broken. The samurai was in the Grand Causeway outside of Josephine Wu's apartment. The fountains ran nearby, the one she had walked upon, and there was nobody around, neither human nor demon, marine or attendant droid. His arm buzzed, and he looked down at his skinter face. 
He was being sent a tight beam message from the Black Diamond. Master Fang would be back in his head any second. These moments of clarity lasted only seconds before he was pulled back into the Deviant's mind frame. He read the message on his arm. It said, I'm tracking six Marines in full combat gear, leaving their post and getting on a lift. They're headed to your deck. He had to pull the scroll completely off the black arrow that the message was fired on to read the rest of it. In the captain of the Kuro Hoseki's delicate handwriting, the message arrow concluded with, The Ronin will cast illusions and play with shadows. There will be more than six appearing, though most will be phantasms. Remember, those that are real are soldiers of the Empire, so try to avoid killing them if such a thing is possible. He heard the gate to the inner sanctuary slide open on the grind of rusted hinges. He closed his eyes and breathed in again, snapping the black arrow in half and tossing it into the mists before exhaling. Soft on the inhale, hard on the out. He counted footfalls. He heard twelve soldiers, not the six that the arrow from the Kuro Hoseki promised him. Half of them were illusions. The samurai opened his eyes but continued to breathe with intent. The soldiers advanced. They wore black masks alive with the faces of goblins, dragons, and demons meant to intimidate. Over their armor, they wore long black skirts meant to trap arrows as they hit with a spin. These soldiers had katanas on their sides, but each had drawn a lance of laughing lightning. They surrounded his front in a semicircle. One of them said in a Japanese tinged with a fat foreign tongue, Samurai Hilt Berhan, Surrender yourself to our master the Ronin and your life will be spared. There is no reason we cannot be allies if you would only hear the truth. The samurai stood, and the gown of the spider's kiss flowed around him. It was a midnight black Montsuki kimono. As he stood, its forearms extended from behind him, the appendage of a spider the size of a man. Several of the soldiers gasped, and he saw the posture of one of them shift just a second before the attack. The young man had panicked and let fly a bolt of lightning. The others followed suit. The electricity was embraced by the spider's arms. They weaved it like an ephemeral web between themselves, letting the lightning hang in the air in a beautiful pattern for seconds before it strayed into the fogs and lit them up like the night sky during a summer storm. There was no sound. The magics of his kimono were many. Two of the soldiers advanced, while the others belched more lightning, just as ineffectually as the first time. The first soldier lunged toward the samurai with a sword, but the man was full of haste, acting with passion, not thought or training. The samurai flowed into a nukiuch, drawing his blade and attacking in the same fluid motion. He cut across the body of the soldier before he was in a position to strike again. He used the motion of the upturned katana to descend into a downward stab for the other soldier, but there was nothing there. It was one of the phantasms. The ghost vanished at impact, and the lack of contact set the samurai off of his footing. He repositioned. The other ten formed into two clusters of five and were slowly circling to flank him. Those moving around his left side were in for a surprise. They were headed toward a mossy stream they couldn't see due to the dense fog hugging the ground. So, he turned toward the other clump, moving deliberately with a suriashi form. His feet shuffled against the ground instead of leaving it. This kept the samurai's torso balanced and gave him better striking power. 
As a side effect, it made him look timid, scared to advance. Some of the soldiers took advantage of this. They tossed their lances to the ground and drew their own katanas. He thought of the message that was fired over the wall by the captain of the Kurohoseki. They were loyal members of the Emperor's Guard being used by the magics of the Ronin. The samurai would atone with their families later. For now, his duty was to stop this monster, and the cost of six good soldiers would later have to be balanced by the gods and his ancestors on the great scale of the heavens. The Ronin threatened to undo the very work of the gods, would kill village after village to open heaven's gate for his own dark demons. Nobody would stop the samurai. He executed a calculated lunge forward, maintaining a most erratic Mai. Mai was the distance you could hold yourself to be in best striking position between attackers, the perfect balance of offense and defense. But the samurai's Mai currently included several eight-foot-long spider legs growing from his back. As he moved to Saigon no Kama for a simple but powerful strike for the one he wanted to hit, the spider's arms struck at two others. At the same instant, his blade tasted flesh and blood splayed against his face, his spider arms speared at the other two. One vanished into a laughing puff of illusion, and the other guard fell back and cursed. The samurai moved to him with a kiryagi strike moving upward. The soldier blocked it, and the samurai flowed with momentum and came back down with his blade, striking the man on the shoulder. His enchanted sword cut from the left shoulder through his entire torso and left just above where the man wore his hilt. He fell in two and didn't have time to scream. It was a good death. That meant five down. He turned just in time to see two of the soldiers get caught up in the stream. One fired his lance again and didn't even hit the samurai enough for his kimono to deflect the magic. The last five were scared. The real men and the phantoms. That was not the way to win a sword fight. Life only surrendered itself to one of a calm heart. These men were outwitted and outmatched. Once it was over, the samurai checked on two of the soldiers that could potentially still be alive. One was, and he administered aid. Six phantoms dispelled and five men dead to make sure the Heaven's Gate would open. That was a much smaller price than Hiltbrahan had grown accustomed to. He had killed so many. But he heard the gate creak on its mighty hinges a second time. Another wave of the Emperor's soldiers were sent to him, sent to slaughter, under the dark sorcery used by the Ronin. He backed up a bit to pick his tactical footing. The stones ahead would be slick from blood and fog. That advantage would be slight, but the samurai needed all the advantages he could get. The Black Diamond sat off the porthole to the Grand Causeway, but that was a term Sheriff Burhan would use, sat. In reality, the Black Diamond was hurtling through space to match the speed of the Tehachapi, but from what the Diamond had learned, human perception was such that the two items were not moving at all, but still, and parked next to each other. The Black Diamond collected data sets. It used its own cameras since remote access of the Tehachapi's cameras would potentially draw attention. The cameras had no sound, but its lasers could read sound through the transparent material making up the porthole. Sound waves would force plants, water, and tapestries to flutter in their wake. The diamond's cameras would read that flutter as a pattern and back-engineer the sound that must have caused them to move. It was a technique it had taught itself several years ago during an investigation 
and proved very helpful ever since. The Black Diamond had been able to send a message to the sheriff by means of the same lasers it used to listen. It could intensify the power until the lasers would etch a message in the upholstery of the seats in the Grand Causeway. It had attempted five messages, but Sheriff Burhan had only paused to read two of them. The sheriff had set his skinter face to display his bio-readings. The diamond read those from his arm. There was a telltale spike of certain neurotransmitters, along with the distant gaze of an eternal something that did not exist. Those told the diamond that the sheriff was stuck in Master Noah Fang's mind frame, just as the two squads of marines he had summoned. The Black Diamond had gathered data sets on the sheriff's motions. His very combat style had changed. He was fighting with motions less intended for a vibro-saber and more intended for a katana. That, coupled with the oddly formal stance of the sheriff's meditation, suggested that the mind frame was perhaps feudal Japan. Only those caught in this illusion would know for sure, and if Sheriff Burhan survived, the diamond would certainly ask him. The diamond sent a message that a second wave of marines was on the way, but the sheriff didn't see this one. If the diamond wasn't ordered to adhere to the strictest silence protocols, voice contact would make his overwatch capabilities 87% more efficient. The diamond suddenly considered its own efficiency. It would need to be doing its very best to assist the sheriff. Therefore, it did what it often did to give itself a slight spike in processing power. While transporting Sheriff Hilt Burhan, the diamond had learned that the man would play very loud music to prepare himself for combat action. There had been studies linking music and test-taking or mathematical abilities that suggested a neural spike after a session of listening to classical music. Sheriff Burhan seemed to benefit from this for the past few years. Now, when the diamond was alone, it would play certain music over its internal speakers. Oddly enough, listening to it through its microphones as an active data source did afford the diamond a 1.81% increase in cognitive efficiency. Plus, it sort of liked it. So it loaded up Vivaldi's Four Seasons and set it to winter. The piece was one of the diamond's favorites. The diamond could not understand human emotion or even sensory and data input. But this particular piece seemed to make it understand humanity a little bit more. There was an interplay between the single violin and then the burst of the entire orchestra that spoke of the macro and the micro. Looking at the beauty of a single snowflake versus a snow-laden landscape. The diamond did not collect or interpret data in that way, so the music helped it to understand some aspect of the human mind, at least while Vivaldi was playing. In this particular instance, it added the effect of choreography to the sheriff's combat. It somehow made this tragic loss of marine life seem more elevated and beautiful. The marines surrounded him in a semicircle similar to the first group, and again, the sheriff moved slowly and deliberately. He would walk in a slow gait that never let his feet leave the ground. He'd draw the blade and slash once to kill a man, He'd parry a blow that didn't exist from phantom soldiers he was only seeing through Master Fang's mind frame. The exosuit he'd taken from the deviant named Foster Berrycloth moved in a graceful unison with his body and blade. It would catch a marine's arm in its claws and pulverize the meat in one instant and then thrust towards someone the sheriff thought was real at another. Thanks to the suit, the diamond had assumed an 89% chance of victory 
and a 63% chance of victory without any personal harm. As the final two real Marines fell, one cut nearly in half just above the belt line by the vibroblade and the other stabbed in the throat, the Diamond was glad its prediction was correct. Sheriff Burhan won the day unmolested. The Diamond watched the Sheriff sit himself down to meditate and it sent another laser-etched message on the fake leather seat just beside him. Once again, the man temporarily snapped out of the mind frame and read the etching. I calculate that Master Fang has retreated to his quarters and most likely to the safety of the framing chamber. No more incoming Marines detected. The Diamond stayed in its position, sitting off the shoulder of the Tehachapi. There was no other position in which it could gather better data. Vivaldi finished playing. The Diamond played Pachelbel's Canon in D. Its focus remained increased as it collected data sets. The Sheriff entered Master Fang's personal quarters by pressing his body through the membrane seal. The Diamond could now only wait and collect data and listen to music and fill itself with hope. The Samurai left the sanctuary. He entered the most sacred temple. The Ronin had taken it as his own, desecrating its magics for his own sinful purposes. The Ronin had already sent so many good soldiers in to die. The Samurai would allow no more. The temple was built in the classical style. It had the curved Mokoshi roof that gave it the illusion of being taller than it really was. The bell-shaped windows, the healthy wooden pillars, all of it was still in its original state. The evil magics had twisted the facade but left the bones intact. The samurai knew it would be bound shut with magics that virtually no man could breach. But the samurai, in his role as sheriff and protector of the populace, had been taught several magical words by the emperor. The samurai could burst these charms with an utterance from his tongue. The emperor's magic still held sway, even in a place as corrupted as the ronin's temple. He slid the front doors open. They were merely panels on a track that he easily could have burst through if the need arose. As soon as the door was open enough for him to enter sideways, he did so and placed his hand on the hilt of his sword. The air inside the temple was dry and crisp. The fog from the courtyard was behind him. But the lighting inside was shadowy, limited only to a few small candles burning before blood-dimmed, hoary shrines to the twisted and the dead. He stepped on the earthen floor, and his shoes met resistance due to the sticky, dried blood covering their soles. After three or four steps, the earth had coated the bottom of the shoes with a thin layer so he could walk without resistance. In the center of the temple's interior, resting in between four wooden pillars, sat a giant porcelain chamber. It was the white chamber of the framed mind. It gleamed in pure white, its surface such a strange alchemical texture that even the Ronin's vices failed to besmirch it. From inside the door of the ceramic chamber, he heard the grunt and sigh of the two demons. One was the Nukabuki, a horrible being which looked like a beautiful woman at times, but the head would rend itself from the neck and take flight on leathery wings that would unfurl from beneath the hair. Its mouth would enlarge as it stalked the night, looking to slake its thirst on the blood of the young. The other was the Rokurokubi, again a seductress demon. This one's head would remain attached to the body and travel the night via a twine of a neck that stretched grotesquely 
like the tendrils of a monstrous squid. Before he came to shore, the crew of Hoseki had informed him that the demons would only be a threat as long as the Ronin commanded them. The Emperor's magic words might stall them or force them to remain in human form long enough for him to strike at the Ronin. So much rested on the next few moments. The samurai breathed. A few short but intentional lungs full meant to steady his hand and mind. He took three breaths, and his heart yearned for a fourth, but his body acted as it was trained to. He uttered the Emperor's first magical words, and he heard the strings of a koto strike a beautiful chord in the air. As the sound materialized, the door to the ceramic chamber appeared and slid open. His hand started to grip the handle of his katana out of nerves and tension, but his muscle memory forced it to relax. Stay soft when soft is required, and only be hard when hard is. As the dim candlelight penetrated the white chamber, the samurai saw his last challenge. Two beautiful geisha, skin as pure as the porcelain that surrounded them. Their hair was perfect and hung with delicate silver bells that only gave the slightest of chimes due to the supernatural stillness of their hosts. The geisha wore red-lipped smiles, which were betrayed by the harm behind their eyes. In between the two beautiful women stood the ronin. His hand was on his own katana, and his face was slick with evil. He wore blood-colored robes, no armor, and his own smile married with the evil behind his eyes as the geisha revealed their demonic selves. One's head tore from the neck, and the otherwise still chamber was filled with the sound of sinew popping and muscle tearing. The head sprang into the air on the flap of bat wings, and a line of intestines and part of the spine hung below the neck like a hangman's noose. The second demon's head met the first mid-air, but this one had no wings and the separation was silent. Instead of wings, the demon floated on a neck that rippled with what looked like streams of creamy pus that undulated beneath the skin. The demon's heads danced with each other in mid-air and they touched so that their now loosened hair was connected as if one thin rope. They both screamed and prepared to lunge through the air. The samurai said another of the emperor's magic words, the one meant to still the demonic attendance of any ronin. The two malicious heads staggered back as if a physical blow struck them. Their screams changed from rage to pain, but the samurai could see on their malevolent expressions that this was a temporary gain. The ronin was laughing. He was so certain of the demon's power that he paused for a fraction of a second. And in that fraction, the samurai closed the distance with two great solid steps. He drew and struck with one fluid motion, and his nukiuch met its mark. The vibro saber hummed to life and cut Master Fang from just above his hip upwards. The blade exited from below Fang's armpit, and his body fell in two parts. His insides spilled in a slop on the floor of the framing chamber. As a member of the WorldGov Conclave, Hilt had given his access code as he entered the framing chamber. The two attendant droids had registered it and stood down. They disconnected their bolo strands and their defensive chitons retreated into their bodies. The mind frame had shattered in an instant. Hilt Berhan stood inside of Noah Fang's framing chamber. The attendants issued a tone that meant they were ready to receive a new master and that the courier was now dead. Hilt saw dozens of messages on his Skinner face that the Black Diamond had sent. Tactical updates and queries, mostly. 
hilt was covered in blood, not just that of Master Fang, but of what he now realized were Marines from the World Navy. They were under Fang's mind frame as well, and Hilt had killed them all, thinking they were enchanted royal guards. He walked to the sink inside the framing chamber and washed his face and hands. He then drank deeply of cool water. Burhan realized that the push of a framer was not merely a way to maximize human efficiency. In the wrong hands, it could be pernicious and damaging. He then wondered what else the deviants could do with framing technology. And then, his heart rushed in a burst of adrenaline. That woman, Josephine Wu, was capable of far more than Noah Fang was. Hilt had watched her slice candles as thick as a forearm with a chop of her hand. He had watched her walk on water. Hilt exited Fang's apartment, leaving the attendants floating in the framing chamber as its door closed, locking them in. He crossed the Grand Causeway and saw the carnage of his battle with the Marines. The strange exoskeleton he had taken from Foster Berrycloth was likely the only reason he survived their attack. As he walked past their corpses, he grabbed one of their lances. He used sign language while facing the massive porthole that looked out into the darkness of space. He silently told the Black Diamond to ready the prison chamber and assumed it had seen his message sitting on the shoulder of Tehachapi. He gave the lance a test fire and arcs of electricity belched from its tip as he closed back in on Josephine Wu's apartment. Hopefully, she was still unconscious from his earlier attack. He would love to take her with him to the Eleanor Gray, where he could give her over to the Alpha for further study. But if she resisted and threatened to stop his mission, he would just as soon reduce her body to a crisp ash with the blood-stained power lance of a marine he had just killed in service of the One World Government. The Lariat was closing, and Hilt Burhan was damned sure it would open for the purposes of WorldGov, no matter who he had to kill along the way. And with that, we see the end of Master Noah Fang. And the adventure continues, so thank you for listening and keep on listening. All of our groups are slowly starting to converge, and we're going to see what happens when the Lariat finally closes. So, uh, thank you for listening as always. If you like what I'm writing, you can check out my books and the books of Zach Smith from the sit down episodes by going to mindframepodcast.com and checking out the merch store. We've got books for sale. We've got uh, various mindframe merchandise from coffee mugs to t-shirts, really cool stuff. Um, it's worth uh, checking out great way to support the show, spread the word and spread the love. As always, we are a Podbelly original. Uh, we would uh, highly recommend that if you go over to Podbelly, uh, listen to The Ectoplasm Show, which is a great podcast about things that go bump in the night. I've been on it a couple of times, so if you search for me, you might find me on there. And then we also have The Paranormal Punchers, which is another great show about uh, all sort of spooky, supernatural elements. So another way that you can really support the show, it doesn't cost you any money and it just costs your thumb a fraction of a second, is to give us a like, give us a share, uh, shout us out on social media. It's really the way to make a podcast organically grow, and it's something that you can't throw money at to duplicate. We really appreciate it. So if, uh, depending on the social medium that you use, if you're on Facebook, you can find us at Mindframe Podcast. If you're on Twitter, you can find us at MindFramePod. And if you're on Instagram, you can find us on The MindFrame Podcast. So thank you, as always, for listening. Tune in for our next wonderful episode. And remember, the Lariat is closing. <laughs>